You're listening to the Grace Sermon Podcast with messages from Pastor Chris Twightman and the community at Grace Lutheran Church, Huntington Beach. We're a family church that exists to engage life together and impact our neighborhoods as disciples of Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org. Now, stay tuned for today's message. While you're getting to Galatians 5, I want you to imagine taking a walk in the woods. And as you're taking that walk, you spot two fruit trees in the distance. Drawing near to these two trees, you notice that they're both blossoming with red apples. Ripe for the picking, you anticipate taking hold of one of those apples and enjoying bite after delicious bite. But then something happens. As you arrive at the base of these two trees, upon closer inspection, you immediately see these two trees are not the same. On the first, the apples hang naturally, as you would expect them to, from the stem. But the appearance of the second tree baffles you. On the second tree, all of the apples have been tied to the branches of the tree. Someone has worked very hard, invested perhaps hours of time, to make this tree appear to be fruitful. Anyone, however, would recognize that this is an illusion. Hanging apples on a tree does not an apple tree make. The appearance of fruit on a tree is not the same thing as the reality of fruit stemming from the branch. Everyone knows this. And yet, how many of us seek to bear fruit in our spiritual lives more like the second tree than the first? This morning, we're continuing our series on the person of the Holy Spirit. And as we're doing that, we're engaging in what Paul refers to in Galatians chapter 5 as the fruit of the Spirit, love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the flavor profile of this fruit. It's robust, and it's desirable to anyone. But what does Paul mean when he talks about producing this fruit of the Spirit? How exactly are we intended to reflect this spiritual fruit in our lives? That's our focus today. And in order to answer these questions, we want to dig a little deeper into Paul's conversation with the Galatians in this chapter. So with those Bibles open or just keeping your eyes on the screen, let's read from Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 13. Paul writes, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not able to do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. 
I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, there's a lot going on here. Let's step back for a second in order to understand the broader conversation that's going on here. Paul is writing to a community of Christians who are being swayed by the notion that Jesus is not enough. The work of God coming down to be with us, living with us in the person of Jesus Christ, bearing the cost of our brokenness while at the same time wiping our slate clean, dying for us on the cross. God in Christ rising from the dead, conquering our greatest fear, as well as assuring us that his promise of everlasting life through him is real and true. This is the gospel for the Galatians. It's still good news. It's just no longer good enough. For them. This community is drinking the Kool-Aid that in order to ensure we are in a right relationship, a good standing with God, we need to follow the rules, to keep the law God handed down through Moses long ago. In other words, to break this down for you, they believe we've got to contribute something to this relationship. We've got to demonstrate our righteousness. We've got to show our obedience to validate our salvation from the Lord. And if you haven't read this in a while, Paul spends the first four chapters of this letter taking apart this argument and exposing it as a dangerous lie. It all culminates, in fact, in this very famous chapter, chapter five, where Paul declares our freedom in Christ. Freedom from having to do anything to earn or merit or justify the grace, the forgiveness, the hope, the eternal life we have been given through Jesus. And that brings us to where we came in today, where you might notice in verse 13 that Paul repeated this emphasis on our freedom in Christ. Paul repeats this point to clarify something important, that we are not set free in Christ in order to use our freedom to indulge the flesh. And that's a, a very interesting term that has a lot of theological writing about it. But basically what Paul is referring to when he talks about the flesh is our nature, our will lived apart from God. In other words, living out of the flesh is living out of one's own power one's own perceived strength, living for oneself. It's living out of the flesh is being self-absorbed, believing one's life is self-determined, acting self-servingly, and therefore ultimately living as self-centered rather than God-centered. Now, if you're tracking at all what I just said about the, this, this letter so far, it might seem that Paul's caution here might be off-base, I mean, the Galatians aren't living for themselves, right? 
They're seeking to live for God out of a conviction that's still very common today about many God-fearing people. They're living out of a conviction that you'll still hear today that the Lord helps those who help themselves. They're just trying to do their part in the relationship with the Almighty. They're just trying to demonstrate their commitment to prove they're worth dying for, to live up to the glory and righteousness given to them by God in Christ. That doesn't sound very self-centered. Or does it? Paul's point here is the minute we begin to believe, the minute we begin to believe we need to prove ourselves or somehow contribute to or pay back or validate the work God has done for us in Christ, the work God continues to do in us, the minute we start to believe we have to validate that, somehow contribute to it, we have pivoted away from being singularly reliant upon the grace of God and have turned inward towards being self-focused and self-reliant. The minute we start worshiping before the altar of self-help, we begin to move farther away from Jesus, not following in his footsteps, but blazing our own trail, going our own way. Because the power is not in him. The power is in me. And once I start to become convinced it's not all God, it's not all grace, that it's partly up to me, even just a little bit, that I can or that I have to produce something, I will become fixated on what I'm doing or not doing rather than on what Christ is doing in my life. I'll become consumed with striving to do enough. That word's a Killer word, right? Enough. Am I doing enough? Wondering and worrying if I've helped myself enough so that God will continue to help me. Or worse, I'll become full of myself rather than full of Christ. I'll become full of myself rather than full of Christ, and I'll start to evaluate myself in relation to other people, feeling superior and looking down on others who don't do as much as I do. You've never thought this before, have you? Perhaps even passing judgment on them as not really being faithful to Jesus. Maybe even going so far as to condemn them, even if only in the privacy of my heart, as not really belonging to God. I mean, look at how Paul describes this Galatian community. Did you catch it in the midst of what we were reading? Paul says that in trying to prove themselves righteous, They're biting and devouring each other, driven by insecurity and unrelenting in comparing themselves to each other. Out of a false front of superiority, this community is eating itself alive, admonishing them not to become conceited, not to provoke and envy each other. Paul warns where this sort of me, myself, and I living inevitably leads And where does it lead? To consuming, destructive behaviors. This unpleasant list of what Paul calls the obvious acts of the flesh are the extremes, the far end of the spectrum, the net results, the dead ends where we end up landing if we try to live out of our own power and will, if we seek to live for ourselves 
Notice that all of these behaviors and practices really divide into three realms of self-gratification. The sexual, the religious, and the relational. And the reason why I point this out is because what Paul is doing here by pointing to the extremes in these three different ways is showing us that living primarily for me, myself, and I destroys our relationship with ourselves, it destroys our relationship with God, and it destroys our relationship with everyone else. In fact, as you heard, Paul goes on to add right after this list a sobering caution that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that, of course, immediately grabs our attention. We highlight that. We underline that. Wait a second. Wait a second. What, is, is Paul saying that God will take our salvation away from us? No, Paul isn't saying here that God is going to take something away from us that he's already given. Our God doesn't work like that. Paul is saying that living like this is choosing to live apart, to live outside of the grace God offers us. When we start trying to help ourselves in order to get God to help us, once we begin to act like we've got something to contribute, that we need to pay back or somehow justify the grace God gives to us, we aren't living in the kingdom God prepares for us. We aren't living in that kingdom anymore. We're living in our own self-made kingdom. And apart and from the beginning, when we start to build those walls, Paul wants us to understand those walls that we build, that self-made kingdom, that castle is not a castle, it's a prison. It's a prison of our own making, a prison where we become trapped by our ego to the point of addiction to self. And I won't ask, but some of you may be teetering on the very edge of that very addiction, addiction to yourself. You know what I'm talking about? Becoming so fixated, right, on making a name for yourself, becoming so fixated on making a name for yourself so people know who you are. Becoming so fixated on commanding attention and respect because that's where your identity comes from. Do I have respect? Do I have your attention? Presenting an image of success or accomplishment. I want people to know I'm successful. I want people to think I've arrived. I'm an achiever. When that becomes our addiction, all of our relationships, including with God, are motivated by what? Our own self-interest by what we can get out of these relationships, whether that means gaining the approval of others or whether that means needing to prove we're superior to others. As Paul describes it in verse 17, and you can see a closer translation of what he writes here, we end up doing what you don't really want to do. Instead, you end up doing what you think you have to do to confirm your worth your relevance, to maintain your reputation, to ensure your acceptance. And guys, some of us in this room, maybe all of us in this room a little bit, right? We are preoccupied with this. Our worth, our relevance, our reputation, our acceptance. And if this is you in even the smallest of ways, you know what this is like being constantly driven by fear, guilt, Shame, that's not freedom. That's Paul's whole point. That's not freedom. It sounds like freedom. We think it's freedom. That's not freedom. That's bondage. 
And that's why Paul pushes so hard here, repeating what he started this chapter with by saying, our freedom in Christ is not some wild, abstract freedom from restraint to do whatever I want, to live for myself. And that's the spirit of the age. It has been for a long, long time. Real freedom is get to do whatever the heck you want. You're your own boss. But Paul declares, no, that's not freedom, that's bondage. Paul says we have been freed from something in order to be free for another kind of life. We are freed from just serving ourselves and the dire results of a life lived only for oneself apart from God. Paul writes, we've been free from, freed from that in order to be free to serve each other, to love our neighbors as ourselves. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but this freedom that Paul is pointing to is a freedom that in some way mirrors God's own. As we are free to love each other as God loves us. And that takes us to the key passage, the key part of the passage here today. Because the more complete description of what this freedom we have in Christ looks and tastes like is what Paul goes on to call the fruit of the Spirit. And at first glance, what Paul outlines here may seem like a random list of qualities, but taking a closer look again, we notice they are divided into very logical divisions. The first three qualities have to do primarily with the impact of our relationship with God through Christ. Love, joy, peace. The second three have to do with our relationship and interactions with other people. Forbearance or patience. Kindness and goodness. And the final three have to do primarily with our own inner state of being faithfulness, gentleness or meekness, and self-control. Another way of looking at what Paul describes here, another way of perceiving the fruit of the Spirit, is these are the character qualities of Jesus. If you were to say, what was Jesus like? This is the list. This is the description, in other words, of what it looks like when the character of Christ is reflected through our lives. And it's intended to serve as a contrast to the outcome of living by those works of the flesh that Paul just described, living for ourselves. And that list, just like the other one, all these manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit impact every relationship we could have, but in a positive and edifying manner rather than a negative and destructive one. Beloved, we have been created, Paul is telling us. We have been saved, set free for a fruitful life in Christ. And what Paul provides here is a simple, vibrant, appealing, and highly accessible way of understanding the difference of what the experience of this kind of life is like. In fact, it's so colorful, right? It's so attractive. We begin to teach this part of the Bible to our children when they are preschoolers. Bible studies and teaching series break down each of the flavors of the fruit of the Spirit are among the most popular for not just children, but for adults. Everybody loves the fruit of the Spirit. Anybody here who hates it? Everybody loves the fruit of the Spirit. No one takes issue with this part of the Scriptures. The problem is, most of us apply this part of the Bible. We seek the fruit of the Spirit completely contrary to Paul's intentions. 
in the opposite manner to everything we've just looked at, everything Paul tries to communicate through this letter to the Galatians. How do we do this? It's this simple. By trying to produce this fruit ourselves. Too many of us, and this is literally from a Sunday school preschool class, but it might as well be in an adult Sunday school class. Too many of us perceive and talk about the fruit of the Spirit as a checklist. It sounds like this. Yeah, I know I lost my temper last week, and that really wasn't loving or kind or really demonstrating much self-control, and I'm going to try harder. I can do this. I just, I, you know, I just need to work on managing my anger, and I can get a handle on that. With this approach... Cultivating the fruit of the Spirit, do you hear it? Becomes a matter of one's own willpower. Getting a grip. Becoming more positive. I just need to think more positively. Developing more coping mechanisms. This makes the fruit of the Spirit into a checklist. And when we make the fruit of the Spirit into a checklist, something we have to cultivate, right? It turns our lives into a game of whack-a-mole. Do you remember that carnival game? With the hammer of our willpower in our hands, we keep trying to nail down the fruit of the Spirit. We think we've got a handle on peace, but then our lack of gentleness pops up. Right? We try to take a whack at gentleness, and then our lack of patience rears its ugly head. And with each throw of the hammer of our will, as we strive to be just a little more loving, just a little more patient, just to practice a little more goodness, we don't experience more fruit. We don't experience any fruit for that matter. We just end up reaching a point of frustration, disappointment, and exhaustion. Yeah, I know what my life in Christ is supposed to look like, but I just can't do it. And in that frustration, some of us immediately turn legalistic. You know who you are. If we can't seem to grow the fruit of the Spirit, then we'll just create a a bunch of self-imposed rules and restrictions to make our lives appear more fruitful. We'll come up with strategies for suppressing all the junk we're carrying inside, all that bitterness, all that prejudice, all that hatred, all that apathy, just to not let it show. We'll craft postures of expression and response that we can exercise in public to appear more loving, to seem more joyful, to come across as peaceful and patient, more self-controlled than we really are. But it's really all just wax fruit. Remember wax fruit? It looks really, really good, but it has no real flavor or taste to it. Others of us won't go the legalistic route. Others of us in our exhaustion become fruit pickers instead. You a fruit picker? Convinced we can't have it all when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, we start picking and choosing the qualities that come naturally to us that are easier sources for our personal development. And when we do this, the excuse is easy if you're a fruit picker. I'm just not a patient person. Just not. I just don't have any self-control. Sorry, don't have it. I wish, man, I wish I were more kind, but let's face it, I'm just not a nice person. (laughs) Right? 
The first problem with this is what Paul outlines here is the fruit of the Spirit. And this is a pastoral hang-up for me. Please, 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 never, ever, 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 ever again say the fruits of the Spirit. Paul doesn't speak of the fruits of the Spirit. The word is singular, not plural. That indicates there's only one fruit of the Spirit. There aren't, aren't nine different fruits that we get to pick and choose from. Yeah, I don't want patience. Self-control, I'll take some of that. There is one singular fruit manifested in nine distinct qualities as a whole. This is a super fruit. It's a packaged thing. It's an all or nothing deal. That means we don't get to be fruit pickers. There can be no talk of, you know, this season I'm harvesting love. That's the fruit I'm about right now. I'm harvesting love. Next season I'm going to work on peace. And if peace works out for me, then I'm really going to get into faithfulness. Faithfulness will be my fruit of choice. more than that. What this also means is even the select fruit we claim to possess to be growing in our lives isn't authentic or real at all. If you're fruit pickers, even the fruit you think you're growing isn't real or authentic at all. This is because our spiritual growth in any flavor variety isn't primarily about us plugging away to make it happen. Hear that. Our spiritual growth in any flavor or variety, isn't primarily about us plugging away to make it happen. We can't just simply tie the fruit of the Spirit onto the branches of our lives. We won't grow spiritually by trying to add love, joy, peace, and everything else to our lives. Spiritual fruit cannot be produced by an outward change of habit or a legalistic system of self-development self-improvement. Because, beloved, it's not about the fruit of the believer. Paul doesn't say, but this is the fruit of the believer. It's not about fruit we cultivate and produce. It's about the fruit of the Spirit. The person of the Holy Spirit is the key. In fact, if you look at this whole section of this letter, chapter 5, this letter is filled with the Spirit, but particularly chapter 5. The Spirit is mentioned seven times. The fruit of the Spirit is a picture of not what we produce, but of what the Holy Spirit produces in the life of a follower of Jesus. The fruit of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit growing the character qualities of Christ in us, cultivating Christ-likeness in us. Now, to be clear, while the Holy Spirit is the one who grows this fruit in us, we are called, let's be, honest, let's be clear about this, the Holy Spirit is the one who grows this fruit in us, we are called to position ourselves to bear this fruit. In John's Gospel, chapter 15, Jesus puts it this way, I want you to bear fruit, much fruit. In fact, Jesus goes on, I want you to bear fruit that lasts. Okay, so then if the Holy Spirit is the one who produces the fruit, how exactly are we supposed to bear it? Paul tells us, did you catch it at the very end of this chapter, as he encourages the Galatians to keep in step or to line up with the Spirit. Jesus, back again in John chapter 15, expresses it with a single word. Do you remember it? Abide. And Jesus goes on to attach 
this concept of abiding to a familiar image from nature as he speaks of a vine and its branches. The only way a branch can bear fruit, Jesus insists, is to abide, to remain connected to the vine. But what's great is even earlier in John's gospel in chapter 12, Jesus, in referring to a grain of wheat, reveals how this fruit-bearing process begins. It only begins once a seed is planted in the ground and dies. So abiding, in other words, begins with dying to ourselves. The first thing that has to happen if we are to have the fruit in the spirit of the Spirit in our lives is we have to die to self. We have to come to the point. You hear that a lot, die to self. What does that mean? We have to come to the point where it is no longer our will controlling our lives, but instead we consider ourselves dead and instead let Jesus live through us. That's why earlier in this letter, one of the more famous verses in Galatians chapter two, Paul puts it right on the screen. Next slide, please. I have been crucified with Christ. Paul's talking about himself. I have been crucified with Christ. Look at what he writes. I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith, not in myself, not in my abilities, not in my what I can do, but I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The first aspect of abiding is dying to self. How do we die to ourselves? still? I mean, Paul's kind of given us his testimony. And I just want to share with you that when I, I've prayerfully just put before the Lord with the scriptures open in front of me, what does it mean to die to myself? These are the questions that the Spirit repeatedly places before me. When I just put, say, Lord, how do I die to myself? This is what, these are the questions the Spirit places before me. The Spirit continues to ask me, where does my identity come from? Where does my identity come from? Does it come from Jesus? Or does it come from what others say about me? Does it come from how I want others to see me? When I pray about dying to myself, the Spirit puts another question in my mind. What's my deepest motivation? What's, when you just strip it all away, what's my deepest motivation for living? To get as much as I can? To protect and secure all that I perceive is mine? Or is my deepest motivation for living to be open? Generous, realizing nothing I possess is mine, but given to me by God in order to reflect his love, his mercy, his grace. What's my deepest motivation for living? And then that, this, the third question that the Holy Spirit puts on my heart, what is my power source? Where does my power come from, my energy, my strength? Is it from me? Is it from my brilliance? Is it from my physical capacity? Is it from my ability? Is it from my following, the people that I command their attention and respect? Where does my power come from? Or does my power come from the Holy Spirit? From the Spirit working with the Word of God to develop the character of Christ in me. My friends, until we die to self, the seed of salvation, the Spirit of Christ that has been planted in us does not germinate does not come to life. Some of you have grown up in a Christian home where you know all the doctrine, you've got all the content, you've got the seed, but that seed is still sitting in you because you have not died to yourself. Because you've put that seed there and at the same time you're like, yep, all about that. Just like the Galatians, so about the gospel. Amen, hallelujah. But it's that plus me. 
It's that plus what I can do, what I'm doing. It's not a both and, it's an either or. And the other thing we need to understand is that this dying to self is not a one-time experience. Dying to self is not a one-time experience. It's a daily process of submitting and yielding to the source of our life, Jesus. It's not just believing in Christ. I think everybody in this room believes in Christ, but it's daily saying, I am following you. I am dying to myself, to my plans, to my ambitions, to my dreams, and I am following you. Tell me what my dreams are. Tell me what my plans are. Tell me what my identity is. It's not just about having the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and we're doing this series because many of you have asked, you're struggling with the person of the Holy Spirit. Let me assure you, all of you have the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. All of you. But there's a difference between having the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life and being regularly filled with the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is this doesn't mean abiding, doesn't mean throwing God a bone once in a while. You ever heard that expression, throwing somebody a bone? Sometimes in our relationships, we step back and we realize we aren't very present with the people in our lives. That ever happened to you? We're not spending time with them. We're not giving them our full attention. And so every once in a while for our our spouse or our kids or our mom or our dad, we throw them a bone. We bring home a present or we take them out for a nice fancy dinner or we splurge for a really nice vacation. But abiding is not throwing God a bone once in a while. God doesn't need a vacation. God doesn't want your present. God doesn't need you to take him out to dinner. God wants you, all of you, every day, every minute. God doesn't want a bone. He wants all your bones and your flesh too, all of it. Abiding is about our relationship with Christ through the Spirit becoming the very air we breathe to be in his presence where my whole life can be reoriented to the things of Christ because I'm in Jesus' presence through the Holy Spirit. It's about entering into the presence of Jesus and staying with Jesus the whole day, letting Christ through the Spirit direct the trajectory of my life. And again, I know many of you are like, what does that look like? What does that look like? And I'm, I'm simply going to share from my own faith journey what that looks like, what God has revealed to me when it's, it's not just leaving Jesus at home, but recognizing Jesus goes with you everywhere you go. What I've realized in, in this idea of abiding is that it's not about what I want to do. It's about what I need to do. It's not about me coming and saying, hey, Jesus, this is what I want to do. Bless it. Thank you very much. Amen. It's about me saying, Jesus, what do I need to do? It's not about even, and we love this, what would Jesus do? As if we stand back abstractly and pretend that Jesus was here and we go, huh, I wonder if Jesus was here, what he would do. It's not what would Jesus do, it's what is Jesus doing? Right now, what is Jesus seeking to do through me? Because it's Christ living in me. It's not about praying for that person or that situation, Oh, I'm going to pray for you. Oh, I'm going to pray about that. It's not even about praying for that person or that situation. It's about asking and listening to how Jesus is already speaking in that situation to that person. It's not about knowing a lot of scripture, getting up in the morning, making sure I get my 15 minutes in the word. Check. That's a checklist. Check. Did my time in the word. Did my little devotional email. Woohoo! I'm good to go. It's not about knowing a lot of scripture. 
It's about daily being in the word so that I have the language and the vocabulary to understand and sometimes speak into what is happening right in front of me. Is your time in the word for that so you can develop the language and vocabulary for the spirit to then show you how to speak into to understand what's happening in real time right in front of you? Or are you checking the box? Well, man, my name's Chris Twightman and I've been 365 days in the word of God. Every day I'm in it. But is it transforming? Is it affecting? Are you hearing the Spirit speak through the Word of God? And probably the most significant thing I've realized about abiding, and this is the one that I don't like to confess out loud, it's the one I still wrestle with, is that when I abide, when I enter into the presence of Jesus and stay with Jesus the whole day, through the Holy Spirit, I end up finding out in the midst of the things that I confront, it's not so much about the Lord changing that person or this situation. Do you live like that? Lord, would you do something about him? Lord, would you do something about that? When I abide, it's not so much about the Lord changing that person or this situation. More often than not, it's about the Spirit changing me, how I relate to him or her, how I engage this situation. When you listen to his voice and you respond the way he desires and directs you, spiritual fruit happens. Love, joy, peace, patience, and all the other flavors start to percolate within you and eventually pour out of you. But understand, when we're talking about fruit, this blossoming of fruit is a process that takes time. Seasons of growth. I mean, what I'm saying is none of us would plant an apple seed and then come out a month later expecting apples. Where the heck are the apples? There's a, we all know it, there's a season of growth before fruit naturally appears. And it's the same with our life in the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit does not happen without seasons of growth. Months or years are not necessarily required as they are with an apple tree. But it does take a season where the Spirit matures and builds us up on the inside to bear fruit externally. And just like the apple tree, the signs of growth will be apparent along the way. There will also be growing pains. The process of change is the experience of challenge. We are stretched in order to grow. Trials and tests will come. Abiding means leaning into and walking by faith. Abiding means when we stumble and fall or when we get knocked down, we don't try to pick ourselves up. We don't try to carry on in our own strength. Abiding means we drive our roots deep into the spirit, content to let Christ live in us rather than to live on our own. We don't try to shortchange the process by looking for a quick fix. And I'm guilty of that. I'm always looking for the immediate exit. But that process of the fruit of the Spirit growing in us is not shortchanging the process by looking for a quick fix. It's instead embracing evermore Jesus' love and promise in the gospel, growing by learning how to trust him. And I can't learn how to trust him if I'm always looking for the easiest, most accessible way out. We wait upon the Lord, allowing the Holy Spirit all the time he wishes to develop the production of his own perfect fruit in us. That's abiding. Guys, the fruit of the Spirit 
It isn't what saves us or makes us right with God. The fruit of the Spirit is the reflection, the testimony that we are living out of the salvation we have been given, the life, this life we have received in Christ. This fruit of becoming more and more like Jesus is not something produced by us. It is produced in us through the Holy Spirit who himself lives within us. And this fruit that lasts comes from being, not doing from being, not doing. The doing will take care of itself. But the fruit that lasts, it comes from being, being in the presence of the Spirit. And this fruit that lasts takes time. As we abide, dying to ourselves and holding on to Christ through life's seasons of growth and maturity. But along the way, as the fruit of the Spirit begins to bud and eventually will blossom, we will be transformed into our best selves where the people around us will not only recognize the difference in us, but more importantly, they will see and encounter Jesus in us. They will encounter Christ, the one who seeks to make their lives fruitful.